Hi, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sipataya. Today we are interviewing Gary Greenberg, author of The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. Greenberg is a psychotherapist and has written four books, including Manufacturing Depression, The Secret History of a Modern Disease, published by Simon & Schuster in 2010. He is a contributing writer for Mother Jones and a contributing editor for Harper's. Greenberg is also the recipient of the Eric Erickson Award for Mental Health Reporting. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. We are talking to you about your book, um, the DSM, the Book of Woe, the DSM, and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. So can you tell us a little bit um, about yourself to start off with and how you came to write this book? Well, I'm a therapist, and I've been using the DSM for as long as I've been a therapist. And like every other therapist, I've been um, sort of using it unwillingly and uh, with great ambivalence, Um, not only about its categories, but also about just the idea of having to involve myself in the medical world when mostly I don't think I'm providing a medical service. Uh, so that interest, uh, that that concern, dovetails with my interest in writing about medicine and the way it uh, sometimes carries moral weight in our society. So it was sort of a natural uh, subject for me uh, when the DSM revision uh, was announced. Okay. So the DSM, just for people who don't really yeah, understand, so it's a diagnostic and statistical manual of the American Psychiatric Association, and what it is is a about a thousand-page-long dictionary of mental disorder. It uh, gives uh, clinicians a uh, series of categories, a couple hundred categories of mental illness, you know, labels, and it gives you the criteria by which they are uh, known. Okay. So why was this uh, set up in the first place? You kind of talk about that in your book, which I thought was interesting, that um, we moved from a society that was, um, well, not as kind of medically oriented to one that was, you know, wanted to be more scientific. And so the DSM was an attempt to sort of make uh, the mind a more scientific endeavor? Uh, Something like that. I mean, in the 19th century, there was an attempt simply to count uh, people that were at the time called insane, um, that they were... um, uh, hidden away in asylums and you know back rooms of people's houses and simply for the value for the for the benefit of the census bureau uh, they this, they turned the government turned to doctors to count the mentally ill and so the, that task fell to um, the psychiatrists uh, who were running the asylums at the time and over time it evolved into an attempt not only to count them but to uh, categorize them. That part of it had to do with what you just said uh, about making psychiatry more scientific. As, uh, from between 1840, when the first uh, account was made, and, say, 1920, uh, when the first uh, diagnostic categories entered the statistical manual, um, the thing that changed was that medicine itself became more scientific, much more scientific. Uh, the germ theory of disease meant that doctors suddenly had uh, a sort of special insight into the world behind the world of, of symptoms, and so they were able to uh, you know, make great advances and also to establish great authority over suffering. And psychiatrists were sort of left behind because you know, the brain isn't very, at the time certainly wasn't understood. Mm-hmm. And so they realized that to make themselves scientific, they had to have uh, some kind of systematic diagnostic uh, system. 
And so that concern entered the DSM in about 1917. I'm sorry, entered the statistical manual. It wasn't yet called the diagnostic manual. That happened in the 1950s, uh, became officially a diagnostic and statistical manual. And there have been four, five revisions now since then. Right. So the DSM was um, kind of reflected a change in society in some ways, an attempt to keep up with the, the medical yeah, exactly. profession. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was really the the... the the way the way it is put forward these days is an explicit attempt to make psychiatry seem scientific. Um, hmm. Now that may not be as cynical as it sounds. I mean that that's how the psychiatrist who so so let me let me just back up for a second. The first the official DSM was in 1952, but in 1980 uh, the third edition of the DSM came out, and that was the one that really changed the game for everybody. Um, that DSM was the first one that listed criteria for mental illnesses and so on. And that, the, right, the guy who, who, uh, who, made, who spearheaded the effort to make that DSM explicitly put it that this was designed to make psychiatry seem less bogus. So uh, it was certainly an attempt to fit in with the expectation of a society that doctors will be scientific. Right. So in a way, psychiatry is pretending to be more scientific than it is. So uh, if, it's, yeah. if it's not really science, then what is it in your view? Well, I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be fair here. I, you know, I'm not sure they're pretending. <laughs> I, think okay. what they're, I think what they're doing is, um, look, science is, is just, you could think about science as a rigorous, an attempt to render rigorous knowledge of the world. And there's plenty of rigorous stuff going on in the DSM, you know, statistics and mm -hmm. studies and peer review and all the things we expect of scientists. What there isn't is biology, and this is where the problem occurs. Um, we expect that diseases um, will be – we expect diseases to be uh, suffering that is caused by some kind of identified biological pathogen. And that is something that psychiatry just doesn't have. So really what, what they're lacking isn't science so much as it is biology. Um, and there are other ways to do science. Um, there's social science, for instance. You're interested in sociology. Um, yes. And th there are uh, other approaches, you know, to, to these kinds of problems, but none of them gives you the, uh, the, uh, uh, the authority to say, that you're providing a medical practice. And that, again, I wouldn't call it pretend. I would just say it's a stretch. They're trying to stretch themselves into medicine by mm -hmm. claiming to have, by making, sort of leaving the implication open that these categories like major depressive disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are medical in the same way that diabetes or cancer are. And that's where the problem occurs. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting because I think over the past number of years, like you said, it's really taken for granted that these categories do exist. Um, you also talk about the role of insurance companies in all of this and that a lot of times the DSM is used as a way to allocate resources. Right. The reason, the reason that the DSM-3, the one that I mentioned before that changed the game, came into existence was because psychiatry was under the gun. The, both the insurance companies and the government, uh, both of whom are the major funders of mental health treatment and research, 
were balking at paying for psychiatric treatment, um, psychotherapy and med- medical, um, you know, and, and drug uh, treatment and so on. They were refusing to pay for it on the grounds that psychiatrists didn't know what the mental disorder, what mental disorders existed, or how to identify them. Um, mm-hmm. So the insurance company really put the pressure on. And to, today, the way it works is that in order to, if you want to uh, get mental health treatment and you have insurance, um, your insurance isn't going to pay for it unless you can be identified as mentally ill with the diagnosis from the DSM. Right. Um, so do you think that uh, diagnoses, that these psychiatric diagnoses, do they have any scientific uh, worth to you? Well, like, the, the word you're looking for there, I think, is validity. Validity okay. is a really, it's a technical term. I mean, we all have an everyday use of it, but validity yeah. has this sort of technical meaning, which is that, uh, you know, you think about it, you can make a construct out of anything. Let's take as a sort of provocative example, homosexuality. Homosexuality used to be listed in the DSM. Now, mm-hmm. it's easy enough to uh, imagine a definition of homosexuality. Uh, and indeed, there was one, and everybody could agree on what that is. You know, to, to, so that any two doctors would agree on who is a homosexual. But the question is, is that an illness? Is that a disease? And that's the question of validity. Is it a valid? Is the thing that you've described a valid uh, disease? And so, <clears throat> the answer to your question is, according to psychiatrists themselves, even the ones who write the DSM, there is no validity to DSM diagnoses. That's not, uh, you know, that's not my, my critique of it. That's just the way they say it. That mm-hmm. if you um, take these categories like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder as real, if you think they're real, you're committing an error. It's an error that has a philosophical name. It's called the er- error of reification. You're reifying the disease. You're making things out of these constructs. And so nobody thinks there's any validity to them except... When you go into your doctor's office and he says, yes, you have major depressive disorder and you should take uh, Prozac and uh, you say, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. And he says to you, well, you have a biochemical imbalance. That's what your depression is. And this is like taking insulin for diabetes. Then it's the doctor who's doing the reifying. And that happens all the time. So in a sense, psychiatry takes responsibility for the fact that the DSM is a book of constructs. Of, of work of fiction, really, but in another sense, they don't because they continue to reap the benefits of having a, uh, you know, of, of having real diseases. Right. So why why does this happen? How did we get to this point where um, if psychiatrists really don't believe that, let's say, um, the category of schizophrenia exists um, in a in a real valid way, then why do they say it? Like, what is the... Well, look, I mean, the, the, the simple and somewhat cynical answer is money. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you want the, the... If you want money and power, I suppose. If you want the money and power that are accorded to doctors, then mm-hmm. you must um, prove your claim to be medical. I mean, I so why not allow that impression to... Uh, be out there. Why not promulgate the myth? And again, I, I want to make it clear. You know, a myth, which, which I think is the best way to understand the DSM, is a work of mythology. But a myth is not necessarily a lie. And there's really a difference. Uh, I mean, a myth may not be true, 
But a myth is a powerful explanatory device that helps make sense of the world. And mm-hmm. the, what, what the DSM is, is mythology. Now, are insurance companies going to pay for mythology? I don't know. Are people going to take um, drugs to alter their brain uh, chemistry and the structure of their brain uh, on, in order to cure a mythical illness? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, so, can, so maybe a psychiatrist can't afford to just say flat out, this is a work of mythology, but that is the truth. So are you saying that the the chemical imbalances that we hear so much about that that you know that they cause depression that they cause anxiety are you saying that really this isn't true? Yes. And that by the way that's not controversial. I mean that's not that's not investigative journalism. It's just just ask ask any psychiatrist who I'm sorry ask an expert. Is depression caused by a biochemical imbalance in the brain and the answer has got to be no, or at the very least, we don't know. But really, oh yeah, wow. yeah. So, so look, but but again, this is not a lot. Um, you have to understand how this happened. We just scientists discovered these drugs in the fifties by accident, not really understanding much about how they worked, and reason they sort of reverse engineered it, having discovering what the drugs did to brain cells. They reasoned backwards, well, if these drugs that are making people feel better are also increasing the activity of serotonin in the synapse, which is what's going on with mm-hmm. drugs like Prozac, then it must mean that the, the disorder of depression is caused by uh, a problem at the synapse, a problem with the metabolism of neurotransmitters. And, and I can explain all of that if, if you'd like uh, what, what all of that means. But that was the that was the that was the deduction that they made, and that deduction took on the status of myth in large part because it's very it's a very lucrative myth. If you can sell the idea that depression is a biochemical imbalance, then you can sell the drugs. And again, this is explicit. This is not investigative journalism. This is right out there that the biochemical imbalance theory was always just a theory. And then in the in the 1990s, after Prozac came along and really started milking this theory, and the technology was developed to investigate it, it turns out that whatever's going on in the brain that um, Prozac or the other SSRI drugs, the serotonin drugs, are affecting, it's not um, directly the result of changing the metabolism of neurotransmitters, it's something else. And nobody really knows what that is yet. Right. So people that, you know, claim that they have been helped by um, antidepressants and and so forth, what do you think that comes from? It comes from the fact that if you take drugs to change your consciousness, (laughs) your consciousness changes. (laughs) I mean, if you tweak tweak the metabolism, I'm not saying that they don't work. I'm just saying that it's a black box. You put Prozac in, and in many cases, although not most, but in many mm-hmm. cases, a, a different mood comes out. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because you've changed the metabolism of your brain. Right. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because um, even though you say that it's not investigative journalism, that it's, it's something that you know psychiatrists will acknowledge, um, I mean, at least I think to the average person, the the myth is really stated as fact. Is, yes. is that what you're criticizing? Yes, exactly yeah. right. And and so while it may not be that I'm you know going through garbage cans and 
finding secrets. Uh, the fact is, this is a scandal. Yeah. It's a scandal that right now, as we're speaking, somebody in some doctor's office somewhere is hearing about this biochemical imbalance. Absolutely. Now, now yeah. I, you know, to, 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 I have another book called Manufacturing Depression, in which this entire uh, scandal is uncovered. Uh, from the time that the Mer Merck, the pharmaceutical industry uh, company, um, sort of, they 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 wrote they had a book written for them by a leading doctor that they distributed to 50,000 family physicians, in which they provided the script. This is back in 1961 or two, in which they provided the script for them to follow with people whom they wanted to say were depressed, um, in order to uh, sell uh, the drug at the time was called Elevil. And there's no question about it. The people that wrote the book did it because they wanted doctors to think that they wanted doctors to stop prescribing drugs like uh, Valium for sort of your everyday anxious depression and start prescribing antidepressants for it. Uh, and this was the method by which they did it. The public relations people who came up with this idea have basically in public told the story. So there's one thing that you talk about in your book, which um, I thought was interesting. You said that before, I think it was the 1930s, uh, only psychiatrists could practice psychoanalysis. Well, no, it's the other way around. Okay. When, when Freud, in, in Europe, and to this day this is true, um, psychoanalysis was not, although Freud was a doctor, an MD, he didn't, really he had a very ambivalent relationship with medicine and he didn't see medicine as a particularly good training medical training as a particularly good training to be a psychoanal a psychoanalyst and so people who practice psychoanalysis were from all walks of life and different um, professions and so on and the same was true early on in the United States when Freud, Freud came to America in 1909 psychoanalysis started to become a hot thing in say the early 20s but by 1926, the New York Psychoanalytic Society was deciding that only MDs would be able to practice uh, psychiatry, um, which meant that, uh, you know, they basically took the franchise. And Freud, this, Freud objected to this. He didn't want this to happen. Now, this is an unintended consequence. I don't think they did it entirely. I know they didn't do it to get insurance payments because at the time that's not how medical care was funded. But as an unintended consequence of this, down the road, the DSM became the funding mechanism for psychotherapy. I think you can. See, I don't think I need to connect those dots. I think you can see them. Um, yeah. So, so basically, what happened was that in 1926 or so, uh, therapy, psychotherapy, the talking cure, got in bed with medicine, and in a way, the DSM five and all the DSMs are uh, the sort of the bastard offspring of that union. Do you think that psychiatry should not be considered part of medicine then? Well, no, that's an interesting question. I mean, there are some things that psychiatrists do some things very well. One of the things that they do well, and this is largely by virtue of their experience, is they, um, uh, they recognize symptoms and treat them with the drugs that are available to them. This is sort of old-fashioned medicine, empirical medicine where you don't necessarily have to know what the disease is that you're treating. You recognize the symptoms. You know what's worked before. You do a good job of elucidating your history and so on, and you provide a cure for that. I think that is clearly medical practice. There are lots of times that doctors are 
practicing medicine where they don't know what the disease is, they're treating the symptoms, and they're doing a good job of it. Migraine would be a good example. Um, and I think that psychiatry should continue to be doing that in, in, within medicine. But I also think that, the first of all, that's got to be transparent. Doctors have to be honest with their patients that they don't really, you know, schizophrenia doesn't really exist, but hallucinations do. And I'm treating your hallucinations. The other thing that I think psychiatry needs to do is to focus its resources and its attention and its expertise on, the, on severe mental illnesses, the one that can benefit from that pharmacological, psychopharmacological approach. Interesting. Um, so do you believe then that, like you said, that severe mental illness should be, um, or psychiatry should sort of um, limit itself to, to dealing with severe mental illness. And then how about people that have anxiety and, and you know, and depression and, and those things that, um, that don't ha cause hallucinations? Um, yeah, so, so first of all, the, the, line, the line between arbitrary, I mean, yeah, the line between serious and other mental illnesses is going to be arbitrary. Yeah. And, you know, my, my anxiety may not strike me as uh, debilitating, but it may strike you. Somebody else's might strike them as debilitating. So mm -hmm. I don't want to say that I know how to make that line. I would just point out that all the lines between mental illnesses are arbitrary because they're constructs. So you might as well make one, right? Um, sure. But uh, so, so does that mean that people who don't have, who, who aren't severely mentally ill shouldn't take drugs? Well, I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, on the one hand, I think that there is a place in everybody's life for using drugs to change how they feel. I, I don't have any problem with that. I'm a, I'm a great believer that consciousness is something in part for us to explore and to play with. And I don't, but on the other hand, when people, if people think that they're treating an illness with a drug, they approach taking the drug entirely differently from the way they approach it if they think they're just changing the way they feel. Right. If you, if I tell you that smoking pot is going to cure your whatever your glaucoma, then you're going to smoke pot one way. If I tell you you're smoking pot to get high, then you're going to smoke it and take it another way. I think, at least if, if you reflect upon it, you will. So, not not to presume anything about your drug use habits. You know, I'm talking about <laughs> the, the the ubiquitous you. So yeah. I, I I I think that um, there's a place for that. But I'm not sure that psychiatry is the right venue in which that gets explored. And so, what for instance, the role for instance of people have thought about making Prozac over the counter. There isn't really a reason not to make Prozac over the counter. It doesn't. I, I like you know, Tylenol can kill you. Prozac mm -hmm. can only kill you if you do something else that causes something called serotonin syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, in which case it can't kill you, but it can't kill you anywhere near as easily as Tylenol can. So why is Prozac not over-the-counter? Well, that's an interesting question. One of the reasons is possibly that we aren't comfortable as a society in having a, a mind-altering drug so freely available unless it's alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is the role of your profession in all this? Because you're a psychoanalyst, right, a psychotherapist. Yeah. Um, so what, how does psychotherapy play into this? Like, how does psychotherapy help where psychiatry can't or shouldn't? Well, with, with respect to the DSM um, conversation, um, the DSM is a, is a convenience for uh, 
therapist like me, and the reason it's a convenience isn't because it helps us treat our patients. It's because it helps us get money. So the most immediate way in which it fits in is if you have that financial um, uh, incentive to use it, then you use it. But if you And if you don't use it, you make less money. So one thing that therapists like me do is we use the DSM as little as possible. I try to, um, you know, encourage patients not to use it uh, mm-hmm. and, and therefore not to use their insurance and therefore to pay me directly and pay me less money than they might than the insurance company might otherwise do. Okay. Um, but uh, the, the larger question, uh, you know, I think that therapy needs to get, psychotherapists in general need to get out of bed with medicine. There's no reason for us to be a medical practice. We're not really a medical practice. Unless the definition of medicine changes to include the sort of enhancement and uh, uh, well-being and stuff like that, in which case, you know, that's a whole change that takes place across the board and all sorts of, um, all sorts of, uh, practices become quote medical, but now medicine is expanded even beyond where it's expanded, and I'm not sure that's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you you do mention a statistic. I think that uh, three fourths of antidepressants are prescribed without a psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah, I and mean, this goes back to the whole the whole over the counter thing. Three quarters of the, the antidepressants out there are being prescribed by family doctors and other primary care physicians, um, with, without bothering with them psychiatric diagnosis, there's a total disconnect between diagnosis and treatment. Um, The the DSM is explicitly not a treatment manual. Uh, The idea there is that isn't isn't to tell doctors how to proceed. Um, It's presumably to help doctors communicate with one another about what's going on with the patient. Um, But what doctors treat, as I said earlier, is symptoms. And uh, do you really need a diagnosis to do that? I'm not sure. Yeah. What's really interesting about diagnoses and the DSM, I find, is how it relates to people's sense of self. Because even if the DSM is a construction, people still take it very seriously. And you talk about this in, in your book. Um, I don't mean psychiatrists, I mean patients. Yeah, uh, about uh, Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, so Can you talk a little bit about that and how that happened? Sure. I wrote about Asperger's syndrome in my book because, you know, every everybody's at least heard about or considered the fact that a psychiatric diagnosis is a uh, is a, is is stigmatizing uh, you know the the DSM could be seen as a book of insults um, different ways to impugn other people's integrity and so on but uh, I wrote about Asperger's because here's an example of a, a disorder that gave, gave people an identity that was positive Asperger's disorder came into existence in 1994 and helped immensely People who at the time were merely considered awkward or strange or otherwise uh, didn't fit in. And with it came a flowering of a community based around the identity of Asperger's. And with it came this idea of neurodiversity, the idea that people have different, uh, for whatever reasons, different neurological styles. And um, as a result of the diagnosis, people were helped immensely by virtue of having this new identity. Now, as it happens, the, the uh, DSM-5 will not have Asperger's in it. It remains to be seen what will happen with the people who had it, uh, who had the diagnosis. But on the other hand, uh, I didn't write about this in, in the DSM book, uh, the Book of Woe, but I did write about it in um, uh, my Manufacturing Depression book. 
what happens when the identity that you are given by virtue of a label is a medical is, is a medical identity. If your identity is a sick person, and that in a way changes the especially if there's a drug treatment available, it changes the way that you understand your whole your, yourself and your situation in your life. Um, and a good example of that would be the way that um, people latch on to a diagnosis like um, uh, major depression or bipolar disorder. And then whatever problem they're having becomes a matter of something that's totally inside the individual and doesn't have anything to do with their society. And yet any therapist will tell you that what people really worry about and what often depresses them are conditions like um, uh, you know, the, the uncertainty of the economy or the difficulty with paying tuition or the uncertainty about retirement and other real-life issues that are reflecting material conditions of the society. But if the, if the identity that you get is as a sick person, then those conditions aren't seen as themselves pathological. Instead, the person is seen as pathological. And that, I think, could be a real problem. Yeah. And that also seems to be kind of a distraction from, from social issues. Yes. Yeah. That, that's, that, you've just said much better what I meant to say. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, yeah. If you just imagine how much better everybody would feel if we knew uh, what our retire, who was going to pay for our retirement and what it would consist of and uh, you know who, how we were going to send our kids to school and you know how we were going to pay if something bad should happen to us medically. I think we'd all be a whole lot less. People like me would be uh, have less business. Yeah. Well, the the interesting thing too about uh, depression is that, uh, which I found horrifying, is the whole bereavement um, exemption that is now going to be taken out. So. Um, Basically, if you've had a major loss, like the loss of a loved one, you were unable to be diagnosed with depression um, unless a certain time had elapsed, and now that's not even no longer true? That's correct. The problem, yeah. the problem here go, goes way beyond the question of depression and bereavement. It goes right to the heart of the DSM. When the DSM-3 came out in 1980, the big change, in addition to these lists of criteria and new diagnostic categories was that no longer were psychiatric diagnoses tied to the notion of cause. It used to be that the definition of a mental disorder was uh, was a kind of suffering that was caused by what they called intrapsychic conflict, which is a concept indebted to Freud. And mm -hmm. part of what the purpose of DSM-3 was, was to eliminate all of that kind of um, speculation about what uh, caused mental illness. And so one of the results of that was that it turns out that if you don't think about causes, you can't distinguish between a person who's depressed because their wife just died and a person who's depressed for unspecified or unspecifiable reasons. And indeed, as they were researching the D for the DSM-3, they discovered that the criteria of depression would apply to many, if not most, people who were in mourning. And this obviously is a problem because uh, the whole idea here was to win public confidence. And how are you going to win public confidence if, you know, you're saying, well, everybody whose wife just died, you know, everybody who's in mourning is actually mentally ill. It just doesn't work. So they decided ultimately to create a two-month exclusion where it was virtually impossible. It was made impossible to, to diagnose somebody with depression unless they were within two months of a, of a bereavement unless they were... Uh, suicidal or otherwise severely depressed. 
Um, so it was, uh, and and but this 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 didn't really work. I mean, it's it's an, it's like a it's it's very unwieldy to say yeah you're you have all if you meet the criteria you're depressed unless you're not. <laughs> Doesn't make any right. sense. And but the problem with only having a bereavement exclusion is what about other catastrophes? What about this divorce, foreclosure, unemployment, and that sort of thing? What happens then? And and certainly and and so some researchers asked that question and discovered there's no particular reason to there's, there's nothing really different in terms of our experience of loss uh, between those um, bad things that happen between maybe, you know a major setback like a divorce or or a death. And so the DSM-5 people were faced with the, the dilemma, what to do about this, and what they decided to do about it, rather than try to reincorporate an idea of causation in depression and distinguish between depressions that were caused by external conditions and those that were not, they decided to just eliminate the bereavement exclusion. So now after two weeks, if you're depressed, if you meet the criteria, you can be diagnosed with major depression. Wow. So this is also related to um, the whole process of children being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Is that a similar kind of process? No, that's, that's, a, whole, that's a whole different kind of problem. That problem results okay. from – that one is much more squarely in – you know, that, that's more about greed. Uh, that mm -hmm. was just the, – the problem here was that you had children who were really hard to handle and for whom the uh, – uh, anti the the drugs for attention deficit disorder, the stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall, weren't effective. And uh, a, a Harvard doctor, very prestigious, influential Harvard doctor, got it in his head that the best way to deal with these kids was to call them bipolar, to say they had bipolar disorder, which was uh, previously rarely, if ever, diagnosed in children. And even if they didn't meet the criteria for bipolar disorder, to sort of stretch the criteria such that they could be called bipolar and prescribe antipsychotic drugs. Now, these kids often did respond well to the antipsychotic drugs because they were they are tranquilizers. They they sort of muffle everything, and the kids indeed calmed down. It became much easier to manage, but they also became obese and diabetic, and um, uh, uh, stupid. I, well, that's probably too strong, but you know, made them. It, it clouds thinking, um, mm -hmm. and all of that was the, the the rationale for that was this diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which, as I said, was made really irrespective of what the diagnostic criteria are. The very bizarre thing about the DSM is that doctors are told that they're free to ignore it. That if you think that your patient meets the, doesn't, if your patient doesn't meet the criteria for disorder, but you think they have it, you can diagnose them anyway. Mm. So it's very much a not non-scientific kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it, the DSM-5 is just another manual to ignore in many respects. Right. <laughs> so it's very useful in that way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's nice to have a manual to ignore. Exactly. Uh, do you think that the, the problem of the DSM is actually a much larger problem of our society where we only see what is um, scientific and what is what can be measured as being worthy um, and valuable and uh, worthy of our attention. For example, someone who says, well, I have major depression, um, they'll get a lot more support and sympathy than if they say, well, I'm sad. Whereas, yeah, yeah. you know, the reaction is usually, well, you know, get back to work. Yes, I think, I think that you've just hit on exactly what the problem is. I mean, 
what is a disease anyway? A disease is, as I said earlier, it's, it's not really a form of suffering that's caused by an identifiable biological pathogen. That's the dream. If it was like, if that was the case, then all suffering is just, you know, a, this one discovery away from being relieved. But what a disease really is, is a, um, uh, 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 it's a, a disease is a kind of suffering that a society decides to relieve, you know, to devote healthcare resources to relieving. And to get that relief, to get those resources, it's very helpful to have some kind of biological thing to say you have. Now, as we said earlier, that doesn't really exist in psychiatry, but extending that the umbrella of medicine over psychiatric conditions does exactly what you just said. It opens up resources to people who have the diagnosis. And those resources, as you just pointed out, aren't just money. They're also sympathy, tolerance, support, real precious. And for whatever reason, and I've never figured this out, limited, uh, you know, our our empathy seems to be (laughs) uh, limited. Um, So, yeah, that's, that's what the labels do. And so the DSM is really just, uh, in a way, responding to a consumer demand. Right. One thing that you said um, in an interview with The Atlantic is that people are comforted by the idea that people who do evil things must have a mental illness. Yeah. Um, but you believe that that is not true and that there actually is such a thing as evil. I do. I mean, I, I'm not willing. I don't know how... how how hard I'm willing to pursue that, but I, I'm certainly willing to say that not everything that is done that is uh, objectionable or bizarre or horrible is mm-hmm. the result of mental illness. I mean, uh, I, it's, it's easy to say, but that's just because we have such an impoverished uh, moral vocabulary, especially compared to our rich uh, medical vocabulary. Uh, so, you know, as one has developed, as the medical language has developed, the moral language has atrophied. And so I did a, early on in my writing career, which started about 15 years ago, um, I got involved with uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and from all appearances wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic. And indeed, I got into a long correspondence with him where he showed himself to be many things, among them extremely antisocial and unpleasant. Um, not not to mention, you know, he sent bombs through the mail to people he didn't know. But one thing he wasn't, in my experience, and I had a prolonged encounter with him, uh, was uh, paranoid schizophrenic. So this was an example of, well, a guy does this really crazy stuff, he must be crazy. Right. But eh, I'm not sure that's true, and I don't think it serves us very well to think about uh, terrorists or pedophiles or uh, people who commit heinous acts um, as sick. It, just, it doesn't really help us. Mm. We're better off thinking of them as people who need to be uh, controlled or punished or uh, you know, somehow or other stopped. Yeah. Do you think maybe it just helps people not, it helps people who are not like that in the sense it doesn't help um, society as a whole, but it might help people to feel comforted in some way? Always. Even if yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's doubly comforting. First of all, when you say they're crazy, then that, that's a great way of saying they're not me. Right. Whereas if it's true that there's something evil in us, you know, something bad in us, and somebody does out there to something bad, you know, it's easy enough to it's, – it's a lot harder to separate yourself from that because you, if you have any self-knowledge at all, all, you know what you're capable of. 
Sure. Right. I mean, everybody has had at least once in their life the experience, I think, anyway, of wanting to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, what's road rage? You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and the next thing you know, you want to kill them. Right. right. Now, maybe it, it passes, and, and fortunately, most of us don't do it. But still, right. when you see somebody actually acting that out, it's very challenging uh, if you think of yourself as kindred to them. Right. Yeah. Those instances where you say, I don't know where I was. I don't know, you know, if, if something had been different. If I had a gun at that moment, something would have been different. Exactly. Hmm. Um, so to finish off, I'd like to ask you um, about the the um, mental the Institute of Mental Health, um, what you call their uh, younger, sexier lover, <laughs> um, as opposed to the DSM, and you say that that lover is neuroscience. Yeah. So now they're trying to uh, get a divorce from the DSM. Well, they're they're, they're certainly um, having a trial separation here. I mean, <laughs> the 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 head of the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, a guy named Tom Insel and his predecessors, a guy named Stephen Hyman, both both psychiatrists, both of them smart guys, uh, for the last 15 years have been distancing the NIMH from uh, the DSM. And the reason for that is because of this problem we talked about before, the reification. Uh, because the DSM controls uh, research. Um, if you want to get your research project funded, Let's say you want to look into some, I don't know, some mental health issue and you want to get it funded. Your best bet is to um, seek money to do a research project on a DSM diagnosis. Similarly, if you're a drug company and you want to get a drug approved, your best bet is to tie it to a DSM diagnosis. Well, if you think about it, if the DSM diagnoses aren't real, then what you have is a situation where the entire apparatus is based on something that isn't real. And you end up not getting anywhere. It's just like an Alice in Wonderland uh, world. Mm-hmm. And so the NIMH people have been recognizing this, as I said, for 15 years, and they've been saying, look, let's try to do this differently. Because as it turns out, as neuroscience develops and it's still in its infancy, to the extent that we understand anything, it's not mapping. It's not The DSM categories are not mapping onto what we're discovering about neuroscience. Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, for instance, appear to have a common genetic underpinning. So are they two different diseases as they've been considered for 120 years? Nobody really knows. So what they're trying to do at NIMH is to help researchers break out of the DSM prison and do research based on something else. And the something else they're proposing right now is that researchers look at the basic neurocircuitry of certain symptoms like fear or sadness or worry or uh, something like that um, and to see if they can elucidate the neurocircuitry of these symptoms as opposed to dealing with these uh, mythical disorders. Now, this thing is really, it's, it, this project is really in its infancy. Whether it's going to pay off, nobody knows. Um, what I think is important is to remember that it's maybe we'll never know how the brain is related to consciousness, how it actually produces it. And so we, this may not get us very far in terms of understanding ourselves. Even more to the point, as people hear from experts that, you know, this part of the brain does this and that part of the brain does that, which is a whole different kind of mythology, it changes our sense of ourselves. We suddenly, uh, our understanding of agency and all sorts of other important uh, questions about human nature, a human being, uh, can be influenced by a kind of a premature adoption of the idea that the brain 
that there's nothing to us but what our, whatever goes on in our brains. Hmm. And while I'm not saying that's not true, I'm also saying we don't know. Right. Do you think that one day you'll go into a psychiatrist's office, not you, but, you know, the general you, um, and say, you know, I have anxiety or I feel depressed and they will order an MRI? Yeah. No, probably yeah. not an MRI. Uh, because MRIs are not dynamic. You know, MRIs are crude. Uh, okay. All they are is, you know, they're measuring blood flow through the brain. It's a fancy way to see how much blood is going where in the brain, which is an indirect indicator of where brains are busy. Um, but, yeah, I think, in fact, at the EPA conference I went to in 2012, that was one of the highlights was a guy who was talking about what he thought might be the first biomarker in psychiatry, which is what the brain does when it's craving a substance that you're addicted to. Um, and he said right out, he said, yeah, well, you know, this would mean you'd have to have a brain scanner, but they're getting cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I think that's exactly where psychiatry would like to go. And, and by the way, they'd like to go there so that they don't wait for you to come in with some kind of behavioral complaint. They'd like to get there before the behaviors manifest. Tom Insel, the guy from the NIMH, in his stump speech will tell you that by the time you identify a kid with ADHD through his behavior, it's too late. Gary, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's a um, if people want to buy your book, where can they find it? Uh, well, it's in bookstores, or they can go on to one of the uh, online purveyors. I mean, myself, per personally, I prefer they go to their local bookstore and buy it or get them to order it. But if, they're, if they need immediate gratification, why, there are uh, available copies on the, on the bookstore giant who will not be named. And um, also, they can go to my website and buy it there, which is GaryGreenbergOnline.com. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your oh, book. You're welcome. Thanks for the interview. <laughs> you have been listening to an interview with Gary Greenberg, author of The Book of Woe, The DSM, and The Unmaking of Psychiatry. This is your hostess, Annie Sabukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.